You're getting the most out of being at a game with American Express. The card member entrance, the lounge, and out tip-off. See how to elevate your live sports experience at AmericanExpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. When you're an American Express Platinum card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, Shoot that! Shoot that! And even, Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Terms apply. Welcome to the latest edition of March Madness 365. I'm your host, Andy Katz. And on this edition of our podcast, I've got the entire Drew family in the sport of basketball. Homer Drew, the father, former head coach of Valparaiso. Scott Drew, the head coach at Baylor. And Vanderbilt's Bryce Drew. Look, right now in the family coaching tree, if you're keeping track, the Drews have 1,082 wins. 1,082 wins combined for all three Drews. Homer Drew, of course, retired now. Scott Drew at Baylor. He's been to two Elite Eights on the 15-year anniversary of taking over that program. And Vanderbilt's Bryce Drew in his second season with the Commodores. Phenomenal recruiting class. He's got a chance to get Vandy back near the top of the SEC. In the back end of the podcast, I'll be joined by Lefty Drizelle. About to be inducted into the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame next week in Springfield, Massachusetts. So what a career that Lefty had, whether it was at Davidson, Maryland, where he's probably most known for, James Madison and Georgia State. Lefty Drizelle joining us here at March Madness 365. Joining me now here on March Madness 365, Vanderbilt head coach Bryce Drew, formerly of Valparaiso and Valparaiso fame, but now leaving an imprint already on Vanderbilt. Bryce, there's a lot of expectation going into this season, a heralded recruiting class. There were moments last season where certainly you guys showed a lot of promise. Uh, let's talk about the summer. You had a chance to see you, some of your new guys. Uh, what are your first impressions now that they've actually been under your watch? Yeah, you know, it, it's been a great uh, transition here from spring to summer and now uh, the fall starting. Uh, you know, we recruited most of these guys on the roster, and uh, there's been a great chemistry all summer long instantly with the guys. And um, we really thought we made strides. Uh, we got a little bit bigger this summer. Um, you know, we got a little bit faster. And we're going to need it because the SEC is the best top to bottom that's ever been in its history. Yeah, what did you learn about the SEC in your first season? You, you know, uh, a very fast league and, um, you know, a lot of uh, athleticism. You know, as you look at a lot of the mock drafts, you know, a, a lot of draft picks are coming to our league more than any other leagues in the country on some uh, draft polls. And so there's really good players. So to compete first, you know, you got to have good players. And, you know, we're very blessed. We're able to go out and recruit the highest recruiting uh class that Vanderbilt uh, basketball has ever had this last year. All right, let's break it down. Uh, go one by one. Let me know what you think their impact will be. You know, we'll start with Darius Garland. Uh, you know, he's a hometown hero here from Nashville, uh, number one point guard in the country, uh, you know, according to what poll you look at. And, uh, you know, he's just a dynamic point guard, has an unbelievable feel, uh, is a great leader, and uh, players just want to play with him. So, 
he was he was uh you know kind of the the piece that that rallied uh Simi Chatu, um our player from Canada who was also McDonald's All-American to be able to come and uh you know both of them are projected draft picks and then uh we got Aaron Neesmith who we feel is a, a very big part of our team he was ranked one of the best shooters coming out of the 2018 class so you know all in all three top uh, 55 kids that we feel are going to make impacts from day one for us. You know, and, and some of that obviously is timing in terms of logistics and having someone who's local as being that anchor. But what do you think it meant to see Vanderbilt, even before you could get them, mentioned with, you know, an elite player? Because that had not happened, uh, you know, most recently. I mean, for the most part, when Vanderbilt was good under Kevin Stallings, you know, it was being built. I mean, it was you know, guys that were older and getting an older team and, 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 and not necessarily getting the highest profile guy even within your reach. What, what do you think that means to Vanderbilt right off the bat to be able to do it and the timing of being fortunate to having someone of that, you know, status that close to home? Yeah, you, you hit it right on the head there. You know, timing, um, him being local, you know, the opportunity to come in and, you know, start something new with, with, with a new staff. And so there were a lot of, you know, great things going for us, uh, you know, with that. Obviously, we want to get old and be old and, and, and be an older team, especially at a high academic institution. It's really hard to get, you know, guys who could come in and impact immediately simply because a lot are, you know, younger kids and it takes time to develop. And we can't really take junior college hard for fifth years. You know, we're lusting against a lot of obstacles academically. So being able to bring in, you know, three kids of freshmen that we did, um, you know, it is definitely a shot in the arm that, that we needed. Um, we know it's probably not something you're going to sustain because, like you said, a lot's timing, fit, and it's just not going to happen all the time like that. Um, but it was really big for us uh, considering we're new here, and it's just really hard to get older guys in here. All right, so from last season's team, who do you think – will blend well enough, you know, I'm sure you hope all of them, but I mean, in terms of returning guys with these newcomers that will be part of the overall anchor core group that can help elevate this team and make a potential run to the NCAA tournament. Yeah, you know, we had two guys sitting out, Andy, that um, a lot of people don't know unless, uh, you know, you dig deep on the rosters. And one's Matt Ryan, a transfer from Notre Dame. And, uh, you know, his freshman, sophomore year, he played significant minutes there. He played every single game when they went to the Elite Eight. Um, an average double-digit minutes. So he set out this last year. We look for him to be, you know, an immediate impact for us. And then um, we have a 6'10 um, player from New Zealand, Yanni Wetzel, who sat out last year. Um, that'll be able to play. So both of those two um, and the three freshmen, you know, that's going to be five totally new guys that are going to be a huge core of our team. And then, uh, you know, I'd go next to Saban Lee. Uh, Saban was our uh, dynamic freshman from, uh, from Phoenix. And um, you might know his dad amply, um, yep. Andy, if you remember the Florida State football days, and he won a Super Bowl. So he's just a tr- tremendous uh, athlete, and so uh, he'll 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 give us a great um, scoring threat on the wing, and then uh, defensively with his athleticism will really help us. You know, your family tree has been well documented, uh, and obviously the success on the coaching side of it most recently. I just want to talk about your brother for a second here, because we're coming up on now the. 15-year anniversary, if I'm not mistaken, from when he took over Baylor and what he's been able to do there. Um, And we're going to talk to him here on the podcast as well here momentarily. When he took Baylor at that time in obviously an incredibly chaotic situation, leaving the comfort zone of Valpo where, you know, basically passed on 
from your dad, Homer, to Scott, uh, you know, there was just familiarity and going into an unfamiliar situation, a chaotic situation. Uh, what was sort of the discussion amid the family when he made that decision? You know, um, I was playing uh, professionally at the time. And so I was kind of, you know, here and there, you know, through that whole process and deal. You know, I, I always knew Scott wanted to be at, you know, the highest level and compete at the highest level. And um, even though, you know, he was warned that there were, you know, many red flags going into that job, um, you know, a lot of people didn't want that job. You know, he really took it as, you know, a great opportunity to go in and do something that people said really couldn't be done. And, um, you know, he was immediately drawn. I remember he came back for the interview and it was like, it was like, you know, if they offered, I'm, I'm going. <laughs> I mean, it was a done deal. He, he wanted it. And um, from day one, you know, there was no walking involved on that job. You know, he took it running and he's been running with it ever since recruiting and, and building that thing. Yeah, I mean, multiple lead eights. How would you assess what he's been able to accomplish uh, in the last 15 years? You, you know, obviously I'm biased. He's my brother. But, That's OK. I, you know, I, I think it's so undervalued what he's done down there. I don't think on a national scene they realized just how bad that program was. Um, you know, almost a death penalty, you know, when he took it over. And then also, you know, going against the Giants in the state that, that have always gotten the better players and and, um, and and just had more of the tradition. And so, you know, he totally changed that trajectory. And if you go back to those Elite Eights, you know, I always go back to him because just being a basketball fan, you know, he lost to Duke um, and he lost to Kentucky. And those were the two best teams in those whole tournaments that went on and won the national championships. And so if they would have played perhaps anyone else in those Elite Eight games, they would have had two Final Fours under their belts, you know, at this point. How much do you lean on Scott and your dad, Homer, for advice or, you know, even just checking in throughout the course of the season, especially when you're putting together a program uh, the way you are at Vanderbilt? Lean on them a lot. Uh, you know, my dad, you know, it's, you know, Valpo uh, was similar to Baylor. Um, not much tradition when he took over. Um, you know, Vanderbilt's had a great tradition. Um, but we've never gotten to a final four here. And, you know, obviously all three are private schools. And so there's similarities in that. And, you know, we're, we're, we're always going to be going against programs that will have, you know, you know, more resources, you know, you know, bigger facilities. And so there's a lot of similarities with the three. But, um, you know, I, I think my dad's blueprint of coaching, you know, as we've talked before, Andy, you know, that's something my brother and I do, even though all three of us have different personalities and different approaches, you know, to the game. How did your dad balance being a coach, raising, you know, three wonderful, uh, it's three, right? You have a sister. Three, yep. yeah. Just, just making sure. Three wonderful kids, because I've met your sister as well. Um, you know, especially in his era, the balance aspect, you know, was harder. Uh, I think guys get it now who are younger fathers or in their 40s of just how important it is to make sure you've uh -huh. got balance with your kids and obviously your spouse. Um, but, you know, I, I just love your family and the way in which you guys are so connected in a basketball family, you know, travel and recruiting and all that kind of stuff. And and I know it was a small town, but at the same time, you guys were able to sort of, your dad and your mom were able to keep that balance and, and have that connection. How, how was that uh, able, able to go, at least from the outside, look, appear to be so smoothly, uh, you know, especially with how to manage the time that uh, he had to put into that program. Yeah, you don't know. I, I don't know how it looked, you know, behind the closed door with he and my mom and, and everything they went through, because obviously you're a kid growing up, you only see what's in front of you. And so, you know, from my perspective, you know, I, I, I don't know how I could, you know, I try to do as good a job as he did. But, 
you know, it seemed like he was there, you know, a lot. Uh, some of my high school games he did not get to come to a lot because they were on the road playing. Um, that was probably one part that I remember. You know, I wish he could have been at more high school games, but, you know, they were playing on the road, so he couldn't. But he always made time, whether before his practice or before, um, you know, if it's on breaks before his practices or even during school, you know, after his practices at night, um, you know, for me to be up there with him. And, um, you know, he always made a commitment, you know, to that time. As far as pushing us in basketball, you know, he never really – the only time I can ever remember him ever really kind of motivating me to, to really want to play harder was not until my senior year of high school. Um, and so, you know, going back and looking at it, you know, I know he always wanted me just to enjoy playing. He never wanted to push me. He never wanted to make me, you know, work out and do things. And I really don't remember him ever kind of, you know – kind of getting on me in a way until it was the end of my senior year and I actually needed I was pouting a lot and I needed a little kick in the behind to to, uh to stop pouting and go go play in our state final but um he was always uh, just a very loving caring father and still you know it needed to be addressed so I'm thinking about your shot which has been uh immortalized at Valpo the shot to beat Old Miss you know we've seen multiple sort of uh, iconic moments even the last couple of years Jordan Poole Michigan this past tournament to beat Houston, of course, Chris Jenkins' uh, three-pointer to beat um, North Carolina for Villanova's national championship. When you're a part of a shot, an immortal shot like that, that becomes uh, part of the one shining moment, and then you see the others, how much does it bring back your moment when you see these these most recent ones that I'm just mentioning? You know, it, it never gets old. Again, I'm diehard college basketball fan like you are, Andy, but also um, – you know, one of the things I enjoy about, you know, how you report and how you do things is there's also always a people aspect to it. It's not just about the game. You know, there's a personal touch to it all. And, um, you know, looking back, you know, for me, I go back to, to, to family in that moment, to my dad and, you know, my brother being on staff and just being a basketball family. And, you know, since I can remember being in the gym, watching his practices, going to road trips, um, you know, him dropping me off at home on, on the bus long 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 ago when I was a little toddler almost you know so they could go practice at the gym um you know it was kind of all of that just coming to a T right there we had never won a game in the NCAA tournament and that was kind of like one of our last goals that we wanted to do and uh, it was our last opportunity being seniors so uh you know obviously it's a place that'll always stick with me and I think you know as I've had a a child now a four-year-old boy you know that father-son relationship I think you know for me, and I think as others have talked to me through the years, you know, makes that story even more special because you get to do it with your son and with your family. All right, Bryce, let's wrap up back at Vanderbilt. Uh, I'm high on you guys. I think this is an NCAA tournament team. I know you don't want to have the expectations go through the roof, but what has to go right for me to be right that you guys are going to be in the tournament and compete in the upper echelon of the SEC? You know, first is going to be health. We're not a really deep team. And so we're going to have to keep our main guys healthy. You know, Simi Chatu is about to get released from his ACL, you know, injury. And, um, you know, we don't need any hiccups, you know, with him, you know, along the way this season um, and, and any of our, our other main guys just because they simply don't have the depth, um, you know, that we would like to have. So, um, you know, that's going to be the big. And then the next is going to be rebounding. You know, um, uh, on paper, we, we don't look like a great rebounding team. And we're really going to have to rebound the basketball well. So, those will be the first two things that jump out uh, at me. Well, Bryce, I appreciate it as always. And I know Vanderbilt's going to be a team we're going to be tracking here early in the season because I think they're 
great expectations and deservedly so for this program, uh, not just this season, but uh, beyond. So thanks for uh, spending some time for with us here on March Madness 365. You're the best, Andy. Hope to see you down here. Coming up next on March Madness 365, my conversation with Homer Drew and Scott Drew. And now joining me here on March Madness 365, the father of this incredible family, Homer Drew. Momentarily, we're going to talk to Scott Drew, the head coach of Baylor. We just talked to Bryce Drew, the head coach of Vanderbilt. Uh, Homer, let's first put into perspective, um, before we talk to Scott, 15 years since he took over at Baylor. When he made that decision to leave the comfort of Valpo after he succeeded you, uh, at a time very chaotic in Waco in 2003, what was your initial reaction when he came to you and said, you know what, I'm going to take this job? I was very proud of him, Andy, very proud, because to me there's only one way to go when he first went to Baylor, and that's up, uh, because it was at such a low tide for not only Baylor University, but for all NCAA basketball. So the, uh, there was only one way to go, and that's up. And, and Scott always loved a challenge. He loved the opportunity because uh, Baylor being a, um, a strong Christian school as well. And so it was a natural fit. It just was a good fit for him. In the 15 years since then, he's had multiple lead eights, uh, had a program that was at the bottom of the Big 12, has competed near the top, and arguably – you know, the toughest conference, if not, you know, number two, depending on how you want to debate it. But uh, how would you assess the job he's done? And I know you're biased, but that's okay uh, in the last 15 years. <laughs> I am very biased and, and very proud of what he has accomplished there. It's been incredible from where he had walk-ons that were starting on the team and had tryouts so that they could have enough basketball players. I can remember going and watching his practice, and he would be doing all these charge drills. Andy and I thought he may not even have a team to to finish a game with. Uh, but he developed the toughness for them and just the togetherness of a team and to see them get better and better every year. And what is, is really neat um, from my perspective is that a lot of those kids who he coached went on and played pro ball, made a, a living that way, and they come back now in the summers to play with, with the new kids coming in. And it's wonderful to see the Twitties and the Laces and, and these kids coming back and playing with the new kids. And that really speaks well of developing a relationship that stays outside of the world of basketball. And when we get to it, the relationships are what's count as we go through our lives. All right, so let's turn to Bryce. Uh, over at Vanderbilt, uh, incredible recruiting class. It's a job that's got history, but uh, high academic school and in a league in the SEC that's been hard to sustain at the top, obviously with the likes of Kentucky and Florida and Arkansas has had their runs. Um, what advice have you given Bryce in terms of building that Vanderbilt program up uh, to the point where they can be an SEC contender and a team that's going to compete for an NCAA tournament berth on a regular basis? Well, I think his brother Scott gives him better advice than what I, I've gotten and, and- Bryce has his own way of doing things, and it's wonderful as a dad just uh, to sit and visit. Some of my proudest moments are at about 11 at night where we got Bryce and Scott and myself on just talking basketball. 
And I think, Andy, I learned far more for them. But both Scott and Bryce have, they've always loved the sports world. They love about the relationships you built and taking young men and putting them into a team and seeing them develop. And um, Bryce has got a really young team. Their three freshmen are very talented. But to blend them all together is the fun and the excitement of coaching a, a group of men. Those 11 o'clock conversations, uh, are they conference calls? Are they FaceTime? And what, what's how often do those occur? No. Well, uh, they're just three-way, and it's just between the three of us, and that's it. And it's about anything with basketball life or what. It just uh, uh, makes a dad feel very warm with his two sons. And how often do those occur? Oh, depending on how the year's going. <laughs> <laughs> it can be very quick. They can be very long. Uh, but a couple times a week, you know, maybe more depending on what's going on. And one last thing, Homer, before we talk to Scott, uh, Lefty Drizel, who will be joined, uh, is going to join me here on the podcast, uh, going into the Hall of Fame next week. Um, you guys are in uh, comparable eras uh, in terms of, uh, you know, when he was obviously – you know, building programs, whether it was Davidson, Maryland, went to JMU and Georgia State. Uh, you know, he's sort of credited with uh, creating Midnight Madness, had a unique recruiting style. And uh, as he, you know, w- told me about, you know, his ability to sell, uh, you know, carried over to recruiting. What are your memories of Lefty and what do you think his legacy is on the game? Well, he had a tremendous passion for the game. And Lefty, I remember the best story when I was talking with him one time. He, he recruits hard. He sells hard. He was coming in from a recruiting trip. He had time to run into the airport, change clothes, come out and meet another recruit and didn't sleep at all that night. I mean, that's the dedication and the love that he had for the game of basketball and just what you mentioned to try to build programs. And he was very successful uh, at building programs. All right, Homer, always a pleasure. Uh, best to your family. You've got a wonderful family, and you do. You can always take solace in knowing that you've done your best work as a dad and a husband. Well, thank you very much for sharing that. Here's Scott. All right. How's the adopted son Andy doing? Uh, yes, I, 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 <laughs> Drew should be my middle name. All right, Scott. Let's continue this conversation. Um, your dad just mentioned these 11 p.m. conversations, the sort of the three-way conference call. How often? Uh, do those occur during the season where you, Bryce, and your dad are sort of picking each other's brain? Well, you, usually it depends how the team's doing. If we're losing, they, they go longer and happen more frequently. If we're winning, um, then we're uh, hopefully relaxing and enjoying the evening with our families. So uh, what's great about it, though, is uh, at the end of the day, uh, my dad and brother, obviously we, we, we know how uh, uh, each other responds best. And what's great is having a father that uh, uh, not only gives you great wisdom about the profession, but also knows uh, what you need to know as a father and a husband and uh, make sure that you stay uh, uh, on point with your priorities. And uh, Sometimes when you lose, uh, uh, you, you tend to overreact. And uh, the great thing is when you have somebody that was in the profession as long as he was, um, he's able to talk you off the ledge per se. <laughs> well, I asked Bryce this, you know, a basketball family, uh, especially, you know, in the 70s and 80s, um, where there wasn't as much emphasis on, and there should have been, but I mean, there wasn't as much of, you know, sort of the Mr. Mom and the dad, you know, sharing a lot more responsibilities as we see today, you know, as fathers and, you know, all of us are fathers. 
you know, in this conversation uh, and the importance of balance. How was your dad able to keep that balance uh, within your family with the pressures of coaching, uh, especially with two boys who wanted to eventually, whether it was playing or, you know, coaching, following in his footsteps? Well, I, I remember the NCAA used to have uh, uh, rules where you, you could be gone on the road recruiting uh, year-round. And uh, I believe it was like 158 nights my dad had hotel receipts the last year that he was an assistant. And um, uh, at that point, the story goes, he came home one night and um, uh, uh, us kids thought that there, it was a robber coming home. So we didn't know him very well early on. And what he did was uh, he left uh, uh, a high profile uh, at LSU where he was on the road a lot and became a head coach at a smaller uh, uh, school, Bethel College, and was able to spend time with us growing up. And then uh, uh, as we got older, then was it uh, um, uh, back at the Division One level at Valparaiso University. But I think the NCAA has really done a great job in making some rule changes to where um, you could actually be a husband and be a father rather than uh, uh, work 24-7, 365. And what about your sister? How did she mesh with this, you know, sort of basketball overdosing that was going on uh, in your childhood? Well, she she managed quite well. She uh, 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 filed more than anybody else in the backyard <laughs> and ended up a uh, Converse player of the state and uh, had her jersey retired and played at Toledo University under uh, Coach Bill Finley, who had a great uh, uh, run there and uh, I believe was MAC MVP three out of four years. But she's somebody that, uh, again, knew the profession, knew what it was about. And sometimes after uh, a game, she leaves a great voicemail or uh, you talk with her and, and she's, again, able to provide perspective. And knowing what knowing what each each person needs, it's kind of like coaching. Some need more positive, some you got to jump on more. Uh, the good thing is during the tough times, uh, I think family members know exactly what you need to hear. It's great to be reminded of that. All right, so 15 years later, when you look back, when you took over this job, yeah, this Taylor, is before you were winning triathlons. I, mean, I know, this is I know, a long time ago. Yeah, I, I remember. I was there at the beginning. Um, <laughs> no, but seriously, two multiple lead eights. You know, you dealt with being sort of the new kid in the Big Twelve, and. You know, it's sort of like you're almost like that, you know, there's a litter of puppies and you're the one that can't get in to get the food, you know, and you get pushed <laughs> out. And, and then you sort of, you know, got your way in there and you earned your keep. And it wasn't easy. Uh, you had to take a lot of daggers. When you look back on the, I say the first 15 years, I mean, you could be there a long time. Uh, what are you most proud of? Well, to me, it's always uh, in the summertime when uh, uh, our past players come back and uh, work out with our guys and uh, um, stop in and spend a couple days in town. And whenever you can see guys that uh, uh, um, helped build the program 15 years ago, 12 years ago, eight years ago, come back home per se. And uh, now they're telling stories and reminiscing and, and more importantly, helping our, our current guys just understand the importance of uh, uh, Baylor University and being on this team and the tradition and what it means to them and uh to me that's always that's always a sign of uh, uh you have something uh, uh special you got a program you got uh something bigger than yourself so i love that the most um, when we first got to the big 12 i mean from eddie sutton to bob knight uh rick barnes you had a, a, a ton of coaches with a lot of success and playing in a league where 
Again, every year we can argue um, who has the best two or three teams or most likely to get final four teams, but top to bottom, and I know the RPI we don't use anymore uh, as of this year, but going into this year, the last four out of five years, it was the number one ranked conference, the Big 12 uh, RPI-wise. And what that does is it allows you, when you compete against the best, you get better. And I think I've been blessed to learn a lot of uh, a lot of great basketball um, from a, a lot of great outstanding uh, uh, coaches. The years when you were in the Elite Eight, I mean, you lost to Kentucky and Duke. They ended up going that on. That won it all. That won the national championships. You were right there to get to a Final Four. Um, so on the court, when you think about that progression, how hard was it to get this program to that point? Well, uh, the one thing we could always sell was playing time <laughs> because when we had uh, uh, the beginning years, when you had walk on starting and uh, uh, playing a lot of minutes, uh, scholarship players weren't too worried about coming in and, and having an opportunity to play right away. So the good thing is we were able to bring in some talented players. And uh, uh, from there, um, they did a great job in, in uh, helping us recruit the next generation of players. And it just kind of grew from there. And if you look at it, uh, um, uh, in the last eight years, you've it, it, two elite eights and uh, two sweet 16s. And with that, even a year ago when we went to the sweet 16 and lost a real hot uh, South Carolina team, uh, we got to number one in the nation. And uh, unfortunately, Jonathan Motley got hurt in our last game. And uh, he was the Carl Malone power forward of the year and an outstanding player and somebody that uh, uh, had a great year for us. And I know, in basketball, the parody, you're just, uh, when it comes to March, if you can get in the NCAA tournament, as you know, that's what makes it the best tournament uh, out there. Anything can happen, and anyone can win a couple games, and next thing you know, you're right there at the Final Four. All right, so how do you find these guys? Because every year, Baylor tends to have, you know, a long, athletic guy that can jump out of the gym, finish around the basket, block shots, and it's a different name. But every couple of years, I feel like you've got that same prototype guy, uh, you know, different levels of professional in terms of potential. But you you end up finding these guys. How? <laughs> well, I, I, we have a great staff and uh, uh, they get a lot of the credit. Uh, but I also think the culture and, and what I mean by that is um, the past players when they come back and, and help our younger guys. Nowadays, you go out and recruit and um, players are bigger, stronger, more athletic, faster than they've ever been because uh, they're starting uh, uh, strength and conditioning at a younger age. Um, they're, they're competing at a higher level because the best play against the best um, in the summer times. So uh, to me, really, when they get to college, who's able to continue to grow and who's able to spend time in the gym and get better uh, and not be uh, uh, and not have that entitled attitude or uh, get distracted with all the uh, uh, other opportunities in college. And again, I think uh, uh, our past players coming back and just speaking truth and uh, making sure and helping our guys stay on. Uh, uh, on point. And then I think development wise, um, uh, since 2010, uh, we've been blessed to have a, a ton of players that weren't top 100 or five star guys uh, get drafted. And because of that, uh, I think those guys telling the younger guys, hey, this is, uh, I, I was zero stars ranked coming out, or I wasn't in the top uh, 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 500 in the nation, but I worked hard every day and this is where I got. And I think that that, that helps. 
because they, they listen to coaches, but they listen more to their peers. So, Scott, I mean, you get this program to the Elite Eight multiple times. You came in when it was at the bottom. The natural thing would be to leave. I mean, that's what people would assume you would do because you came in, you did what you said you would do. You got them to a certain level. You got them on the doorstep of the Final Four. Why have you stayed? Well, I think it, it, it's first and foremost uh, the people, and uh, uh, we've been we've been blessed to have a lot of great people that uh, uh, um, from the administration I've been able to work with to uh, uh, um, the presidents and people across campus and the staff that we've been able to have, and then uh, the players. I mean, when you when you like the people you're with, uh, it's harder to it's harder to leave, and you feel like uh, you're part of something bigger than yourself. So um, for me, that's that's uh, uh, always been um and that's why we won't let you out of our family uh the true family loves andy Katz. so but, i mean you know what's crazy with Scott, is well, thank you <laughs> but what's crazy is when you got there you know the basketball program was the one in turmoil and really and obviously there's been a lot of issues with football uh you guys now are the stable program you know it, it the script has flipped you know obviously there's been a change at the top in the president level and the athletic director and and you've had to deal with all that, you know, having new bosses. And yet your mm-hmm. program is the one that actually has been the stable one, the one that they can count on that we don't have to worry about, you know, not that you always have to worry about football, but I mean, obviously there's, it's been well documented what's going on. So, you know, how much satisfaction do you get from that, that you've been able to, you know, build a program also that, that they didn't have to worry about, you know I mean? You're going to do what you need to do mm-hmm. and not have to, um, you know, be one that's going to be an issue. Well, that, that goes back to uh, the players and the staff that we've had. They, they deserve the credit. They're the ones that uh, have carried on uh, our expectations. I mean, this year um, we're in the top 10% uh, APR for the four-year rolling average for graduations for student-athletes. And as you know, um, that when you when you got into uh, coaching, you want to help people reach goals and dreams of becoming NBA players and national champions. But, but, but uh, uh, at the same time, we know how important uh, uh, them graduating and having a chance to be uh, successful uh, uh, after basketball. And uh, again, being being in the top ten uh, percent APR, that's a that's a great uh, reward and uh, speaks volumes for uh, all our student athletes that we've had. All right, before I let you go, Scott, uh, this team, I didn't know where to put you guys. You're on the bubble yeah. last season, <laughs> and and I, you know, I, I will qualify this by saying that. When I did like some power rankings over the summer, a lot of schools and leagues like the Big 12, you know, even if I have them lower in the standings, that doesn't necessarily mean I don't think they can make the tournament because as we saw last season, up until like the final two weeks, you could make an argument that nine of the 10, maybe only Iowa State, was Mm -hmm. not on the radar of the selection committee. So that's a pretty Mm -hmm. great percentage. Um, and I would assume it's going to be something comparable to that again next season or this coming season now that the semester has started. Uh, where does your optimism lie in terms of the pieces that you've got back and coming in to where you guys can be, you know, at the very minimum, a bubble team and a team that's going to be in the tournament? Well, I think uh, um, the, the, the bad news is you lose your, your, your four leading scorers. 
and you only return three scholarship players that actually uh, uh, scored for you or played minutes for you last year. So you do have a lot of uh, new players. Uh, that's the bad news. The good news is uh, we did have two transfers sitting out. And then some of the players we brought in, like Makai uh, um, Mason's a, a fifth-year graduate transfer. Uh, we brought in a, a couple of junior college players. So it's not like you brought in eight freshmen. And again, um, Kentucky's shown that that can work and be successful. But uh, normally, most coaches want to stay away from uh, having eight freshmen <laughs> in, in a Power Five conference. So with us, we have a lot of new players. They are they do have a little more experience than people might think. And one thing is this summer they've been extremely hard working group so far so if they'll keep up uh, uh, that as we know the harder you work the better uh, uh, things happen and uh, uh, turn out for you just like uh, every time uh, in your races you do better and better because of your hard work my man we're trying to do the same thing all right scott before i let you go we know about makai mason if you follow the sport from yale uh and you guys actually um uh you know played them in the tournament a couple years ago in providence but who else for people to sort of that are listening, that are Baylor fans especially, that you've seen over the summer that is going to be another, another one of those guys that's going to be a, a player that certainly will have an impact on this team and in the Big 12 this season and maybe beyond. Well, I think uh, uh, Mario Kegler was uh, a transfer from Mississippi State that uh, played significant minutes for them and put up numbers in the SEC as a freshman. And he's someone that sat out last year and does a lot of things on the court and we're expecting big things for from him and then uh, uh as far as you mentioned uh, uh makai anytime someone scores uh, uh 30 plus points on you, you if you can't beat him you you got to bring him in and uh, have him join you so he's somebody that uh, we're excited uh to have uh play for us instead of against him and then uh, our junior college players obviously uh, they have more experience coming in um, playing uh, uh, junior college basketball. Uh, Darius Allen's a, a great shooter. Devontae Bandu uh, can shoot it as well. And I think one thing we've added is from last year's team is uh, uh, the shooting part. We were a little lower last year percentage-wise in makes and percentage. And uh, we tried to bring in uh, um, some more shooters this year. And then uh, with the high school players, Jared Butler is somebody that had a uh, top 100 recruit that uh, uh, same high school as Rico Gathers and uh, Tweety Carter and somebody we're excited uh, about joining us. And then uh, Matthew Meyer um, from another top 100 player from an hour and a half down the road in Austin, Texas, uh, uh, can shoot it and score offensively and uh, excited about him. And then we, we always got to add uh, those big guys and long guys. Uh, uh, we had one sitting out, Freddie Gillespie and, Another one in uh, uh, Flo Thamba, and I know you like that name. So uh, we'll, we'll we'll make sure we got uh, names on back of the uniforms so everyone can figure out who's who out there. Uh, but I know it's a it's a good group. Uh, they do a great job in the classroom. They rep- carry themselves extremely well, and they work really hard. So uh, we're excited to see what we can put together in uh, uh, the Big Twelve this year. Appreciate it, Scott. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. Appreciate you. And coming up here on March Madness three sixty five, Lefty Drizel. On the eve of being inducted into the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. And now joining me here on March Madness 365, Lefty Drizel. On the eve of uh, being inducted into the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. Congratulations, Lefty. I know this has been a long time coming. Uh, Let's go back a little bit of time uh, just a few months ago. What was your initial reaction 
when you finally got the news that you were going to be inducted into the Hall of Fame? Well, I think it's a great honor for anybody that's ever coached basketball. You know, it's the ultimate honor that you can get. So I was excited, and, you know, I've, I've been a finalist before. So, uh, But, you know, if I'd have gotten in 18 years ago when I stopped coaching, everybody would have forgotten me by now. <laughs> so it turned out good. Now that I'm 86 years old, I'm getting back in the spotlight again. Well, that's right. It's Your name has certainly been uh, kept alive because there's been a lot of people supporting you. Uh, and obviously deservedly so. So let's go back a little bit. Um, when you look back at your career, uh, what do you think your legacy is? Well, I don't know. I think it is that wherever I coached, I won. You know, in coaching, you got to win. You don't get in the Hall of Fame or anything if you don't win. So I won as a high school coach. I, in fact, I win, in high school, we won 57 straight games at Newport News High School. And Moses Malone, who's from the state of Virginia, never beat that. He won 52. Alonzo won about 54 or something. But we won 57. So I won in high school, and, and I was a JV coach. I started out as a JV coach and won a championship my first year as a JV coach at Granby High School, where I had gone to school. And then I went to, uh, after, after Newport News, I went to Davidson, who had never won anything. They had never won a tournament game or regular season championship or anything. And in three years, we had them in the top ten. And every player that played for me at, at Davidson played on a final top ten team. Then I went to Maryland, and I had five or six or seven final top ten teams, and they had only had one final top ten team in the history of the university. And also I had a Rhodes Scholar at Davidson play for me. And a Rhodes Scholar, his name was Danny Carroll. And Tom McMillan was the only Maryland Rhodes Scholar up until last year, I think. And he played for me. So I had good students. And then from there I went to JMU where we won the regular season championship five years in a row. And they had never won five years of the regular championship, more than one or two years in a row. And then I went to Georgia State, who had the president told me when I took the job, said, Lefty, if you win every game for 20 years, we're still going to have a losing record. And, uh, you know, I, in my third year, we won the league. And then we went to the final 32. We beat Wisconsin in my fourth year, I think it was, that, uh, and they had been to the final four the year before, and so we ended up in the 32nd, in the AP 32nd best team in the country at Georgia State. And then I retired. <laughs> so I was lucky that I had good players, and, uh, you know, I, work, I worked at great schools, and we were able to win. I guess that's why what my legacy is, being able to win as a coach. Well, there's a lot more, and I want to get to that in a second, but I'm curious – in the manner in which things ended at Maryland, obviously the tragedy uh, with Len Bias and, and everything that happened after that, how critical was it for you to eventually get back and, and do what you did at James Madison and then ultimately, obviously, Georgia State, especially after the way things ended at, at Maryland? Look, things didn't end that bad at Maryland. Len Bias was a great, great kid, one of the greatest kids I've ever coached. 
I was not fired at Maryland because of Leonard Bias. They just wanted a new coach. So I, they made me an athletic director for – see, I had just signed a 10-year contract the year before. So I had nine years left on my contract. They paid me every penny, even when I was coaching at JMU. They paid me for my same salary. I could have my basketball camp free. I was a, a tenured employee. They couldn't fire me. So they, they just paid me off is what they did. They didn't fire me because of Leonard Bison. They just Oh, and no, I, I didn't say I didn't say they did. I'm just saying that, you know, I think it's great that you were able to continue what obviously was a Hall of Fame coaching career at a new stop. You know, I mean, that was a, a tragedy that, uh, you know, it's been discussed over and over again. I just meant that, you know, how important was it for you to continue coaching beyond Maryland? Well, I was I was like 50 years old or something, and I knew I, I loved coaching. I've been doing it since I was about nine years old, really. And so, you know, when a job came open at uh, JMU, Russ Potts talked me into going there. So I went there, and then from there I went to Georgia State. So, you know, I've, I've been around a long time. So I want to talk about, the, the, the you know, your unique ability – because I think there's more to you, and I think that's part of the reason you're in the Hall of Fame. It's not just wins and losses. You were a trailblazer. Uh, and there are a couple of things that I think that, you know, for those that are listening, A, they may not be as familiar. And one is Midnight Madness. And two, the way you approached recruiting. So first, let's deal with Midnight Madness. What was your initial idea that spawned all that, that, uh, that if those don't know, you really should get the credit for sort of creating uh, such a unique event? Well, George Ravley and I and my staff, Jim Maloney, we were just sitting around talking. We knew we had Tom McMillan and Al Moore and a real good freshman team coming up. And uh, I mean, varsity team, they were freshmen, so we were sitting around saying, "Let's, we can win the national championship this year if we get everything going right. So why don't we start practice? You see, you could not start practice until October the 15th. So I said, one, one, one minute past midnight on the 14th, let's start practice. Because we, we met, ran a mile every day the first day of practice to make sure everybody reported in shape. And so we ran a mile that, that midnight. Then the next year, one of the players said, let's have a scrimmage. So we had an inner squad trip and we played the freshman. The varsity played the freshman. And uh, we had about 14,000 people there. And from then on, it took off, and everybody else started copying it. And it, there's a lot of people still doing it today. And they would still be doing it if the NCAA hadn't changed the rule. And you couldn't start until October the 15th, which I think was a good rule. Why is that? Why? Well, because they, they, they now let them start now 30 days before the first game, and they, everybody tries to uh, schedule the first game early and – so I don't know when they start. They start in summer. Late, yeah, late September. Yes, late September. So <laughs> I, I, I just say I, I think they make kids play too much now anyway. And I probably wouldn't have said that if I was still coaching. Or, but basketball season is really too long, I think. All right, so let's deal – I'm curious of the recruiting aspect because uh, – 
correct me if I'm wrong here. Was there an ad taken out with Tom Tom McMillan, or what was the the pitch, the kind of different pitches that you would use back when things were a little bit looser in terms of you could you know have more freedom to to recruit in a sort of a wide variety of ways? Oh, I don't know. I just my philosophy. See, when I coached in high school, I had to make a living because my first coaching job I made thirty two thousand dollars. And so I sold encyclopedias in the world in, in the summertime, which coaching was only a nine months a year job. And I sold more encyclopedias than anybody in the state of Virginia that one summer. And so I learned how to sell. You know, our philosophy was: you see, the more people you see, the more people, books you're going to sell. And so my recruiting philosophy was just about the same. I went to see a lot of players, and sooner or later, one of them would say, yeah, I want to go to school at Davidson or Maryland or JMU or wherever it is. So my philosophy has always been recruit a lot of people, and if you'll find somebody who'll take it right away from you, which is, that's just the way I recruit it now. These guys nowadays, Krzyzewski and Roy Williams and them, they don't recruit for about 10 or 12 people and figure, well, we'll get four or five of them. Uh, my philosophy, I, I saw a lot of people. And, you know, I, I hopefully we would get three or four of them. But I'm curious, Lefty, what, what's something you did then in terms of a pitch, publicly or privately, that you look back and say, you know what, the, either they wouldn't allow it today or it's it's not done today? Well, back then, you I could go see a kid. 24 hours a day, 12 months out of the year. Now they got you, you can only go see kids a certain amount of time, you know. Um, so I, I could recruit harder and longer, go see a guy. Uh, you know, I saw, I stayed up in Petersburg seeing Moses Malone for a week at a time, never went home. You can't do that now, you know. And so uh, the, the rules, we, we had to work a lot harder than they do now. Because we had to work 24 hours a day, 12 months out of the year, recruiting. And now they can only have certain periods that they can recruit. So that was one big advantage, I guess, that, that I had over them. But we didn't have, but we didn't have all these, you know, tryout camps and AAU camps and all that. We didn't. It was, that, that didn't go on back then. I would. If I wanted to see a kid in the summer, I just went to his high school and the coach worked him out for me. Yeah, no, it was a, it was definitely a different era. And you're right, you had to work harder. Um, you know, I, I don't think you should have to pick one. But when you think back to all the great players that played for you, especially obviously during that run at Maryland, um, are there a few that stand out that you might think about during the induction ceremony uh, that uh, you have such fondness for, whether they – because of how they played for you or your relationship with them off the court? Well, the problem is that Hall of Fame, you, I only have five minutes to speak. <laughs> and I coached 45 years. But, you know, Fred Hessel, I mean, Terry Holland and Fred Hessel were probably the two best players I started out at Davidson. And then I had Mike Malloy, I had Dick Snyder, who played in the NBA for 10 years. And then in Maryland, I had... Tom McMillan and Elmore and, you know, uh, John Lucas and Brad Davis. Brad Davis and Buck Williams have their NBA jerseys retired. 
So yeah, I, I recruited a lot of people in 45 years. In terms of the relationships, because there is such a fondness for you, uh, which I know you appreciate uh, with all those former guys, and I'm sure a lot will show up, you know, for the induction ceremony. What, what does that mean to you that you were able to connect with them, you know, off the court uh, to where there's such loyalty and and uh, a kinship for you and a love for you that, you know, all these years later? Well, I think when you're recruiting the young man, which I did, recruited everybody, played for me, I got to know their families. I got to know them as people and I mean, as a college coach, one of your big jobs is make sure people graduate. And I, I guess, I know at Davidson we recruited, I mean, excuse me, we graduated everybody but one kid, and, and he married a girl whose father owned a textile mill, and he owned about four or five credits short. And at and it, Merle and I, I graduated about 85 to 90% of everybody. And same, I think I probably, the people that played for me, about 80, 80% of them, maybe more than that, received their degree, which is one of your jobs as a college coach is to make sure your players graduate. And that's what you tell their parents, and that's what you tell them. And I was coached at pretty good academic schools, great academic school. And how about your assistants? I mean, the, the coaches that worked for you that went on uh, to be, you know, successful as well. You know, how about that group, that population that you were able to impact as well? Well, right now I have, uh, I think it's 14 of my former players or coaches still coaching today in 2018. My my son is coaching today, and three of my grandsons are coaching today. So I've got four of my family that's still making a living coaching. So I'm proud of all of those people. I mean, you know, Terry Holland took a team to the Final Four. It was great coach and did a super job. And George Ravelin is is in the Hall of Fame and. So yeah, I, a lot of my players and my relatives have gone into coaching. And, and, and Lefty, before I let you go, um, if you can just sum up what basketball has meant to you, what has it been? Well, it's been everything. You know, I, I, I've been married 67 years, okay? I, I, I married my wife when I, when I was a sophomore at Duke. And she's been with me ever since. And um, she's been my number one recruit, let's say. And, and I just, I love her to death. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. And, and I made, I don't make the money that these guys, I told you. My first coaching job at high school, I made $3,200. My first coaching job at Davidson, I went, I could have made 62 Hundred. If I stayed in high school in Newport High School, I went to Davidson for sixty thousand dollars. I went to James to after, and we were third, number three in the country my last year there. I went to Maryland for fourteen thousand, and so you know these guys. But I tell you, I made most of my money off of basketball camps. You know, I'm I was one of the first coaches in the South here that ever had a basketball camp. I copied it after. Uh, Campbell College, Fred McCall ran, ran the one there. And so, uh, you know, I, I don't hurt for money. 
I'm certainly not as wealthy as these guys are now, but I, I eat whenever I want to eat. <laughs> and I've got a great place to live, and I own a couple of homes. And so and basketball has been super to me. And getting to this Hall of Fame is like the cherry on the top of the the ice cream so it's, it's been super I've, been, I've had a great life and I couldn't complain about anything and I played at Duke I'm in the Duke Hall of Fame and so you know it's been basketball has been great to me and I, I hope that I've added something or helped basketball become a better sport you have Lefty and uh, I'm so happy that you finally got in when you can appreciate it and feel the love that I know will be forthcoming in Springfield next week. So congratulations again, Lefty. Okay, well, thank you very much. Nice talking to you. And that'll wrap up this edition of March Madness 365. As always, go to all our social media platforms at NCAA.com and March Madness to find our podcast, March Madness 365. And, of course, wherever you find Turner Podcasts, you can find this one. Let us know what you think. And as always... Thanks for listening. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. See how to elevate your live sports experience at AmericanExpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Come on, pick and roll! 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. See how to elevate your experiences at AmericanExpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Terms apply.